Welcome to the Time for the Good News podcast, the place where you'll hear nothing but good news. We are your hosts, Susan and Dan Granfield. Hi, and welcome to episode three of season two, which technically means this is our 15th episode. Wow, 15, huh? 15, okay. yes. I know. Who'd have thought it? Who'd have thought we'd get to this point? <laughs> <laughs> and we're still, how are you going to describe our location today? We're um, collaborating from different geography. Yes, you're still in Fareham and I'm still in yes. Peace. <laughs> but it seemed to work okay last time, so we thought we'd give it another go in our separate locations. That's it, absolutely, especially with a new microphone board. Yes, well, got good feedback last time. Well, not, that's probably the wrong word. Good, positive response to the sound. <laughs> yeah, feedback's feedback. the negative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's get going, shall we? We've got some good stories. You're going to kick off with the first story? Yeah, this is, this is a great story, actually. So... Uh, a man, uh, basically a paralysed man has walked again. So you go, okay, has this not happened before in various things? Well, no, not with a complete spinal cord cut. Um, so this chap has walked due to an implant developed by a Swiss team of researchers. So Michael Riccati was paralysed after a motorbike accident five years ago, and his spinal cord was completely severed with no feeling in his legs. Now, this is experimental stuff and not, and not ready for rollout, but it's truly amazing. A first step in improving spinal cord cut mm. patients' quality of life. So, I, um, yes, right, okay. We talked about, we've talked about eyes, non-bionic eyes and bionic eyes. So, mm. how does it work? And basically, the way, so the brain communicates through nerves in the spinal cord and sends signals from the brain to the legs. When you have a damaged spine, those signals are too weak to facilitate movement. Yeah. So this implant boosts the natural signals from the brain and enables a patient to walk. Oh, wow. Amazing stuff. You know, I was kind of a little bit gobsmacked by this, actually. So the specialist who did the operation did say that what did help was that Michael's attitude, sorry, Michelle's attitude and approach was so positive. He got himself, the rest of his body as fit as he could do. And he had a very positive psychology. And it'd be interesting, you can't measure the impact of that positive psychology quite often with these things, can you? But I'm sure it must have played a part. Yeah. Um, so Professor Jocelyn Block, major neuroboffin, inserted the implant and expertly attached electrodes to individual nerve fibres. My goodness. How'd you do that? Wow. With my sausage fingers, it would be yes. <laughs> Hence why you're a hotel manager and not well, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> True. So nine people have had this implant um, and have all walked, but not gained, this is important, not gained the ability to walk in every, everyday lives yet. All right. So they have walked, but they can't walk right. consistently. Because the implant, I don't think, is suitable to be turned on all the time at the moment. Do you see what I mean? Ah, uh, okay. So, yeah. However, when I read further down this story, um, I mean, this is the, for me, this is the truly amazing bit. Um, that another patient, David Mazay, who also had the implants, um, his health was so improved that he was able to have a baby girl with his partner. Oh, right. Which wouldn't have been possible before the implant after his accident in 2010. Goodness. I mean, that's, that's truly, I mean, walking 
yeah. brilliant. But being able to father a child mm-hmm. um, when, you know, all hope was probably lost, that's pretty amazing as well. Yeah. Um, so Professor Gregoire Courtine led the team that developed this technology at the Ecole Polytechnique Federale de Lausanne in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So needless to say, you know, neuro, fibre, boffin, central. Um, but, you know, pretty amazing story. Mm. If we think back to the eye story about the implants. These implants are um, just incredible. I mean, I don't even comprehend how you go about boosting the brain's signals. Yeah. yeah. And it, just, it just goes to show, doesn't it, that, that you know, the kind of evolution in, in, in thinking and, and in medicine is it's building on, well, if we've done something somewhere, there must be something similar we can do here. It's, just, it's incredible how, as you see, you know, people's minds work to be able to mm. see that these things are possible. And you kind of wonder, yeah, you wonder where you go from here next, you know, what's, yeah, what else is possible? Well, I'm starting to think that you might get to the point where someone who's been severely injured in an accident and has lost the sight, the mobility, things like that, might actually one day, with the with the help of these implants and the you know the, the help in augmenting the brain's activity in the body, you know, you could really actually repair human beings. Mm. But I think the thing in that story that that jumped out for me was when you talked about the, this the um, was it Michelle the the um, mindset and and this yeah. where I'm going to get myself as fit as possible. I'm going to make this work. It's yeah. not just in the back yeah. of waiting for the doctors to do it. That's yeah, yeah. a huge part of it. A huge I think I think it, I think if you've given up, yeah, and and you kind of you, you've you've got a, a negative mindset. I'm sure that has a massive yeah impact on these type of um, mm. research. I mean, because they, they, they said his recovery was so impressive as well. Mm. Um, so that must have an impact on the impact of the implant, if you know. Yeah, what I mean. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous. Right. Great story. Great story. Well, I'm going to change tact a little bit. Um, and do you know when there's things that you've n- just never thought about? And all across, well, across the world, but certainly here in Scotland, there are lots and lots of wind turbines, huge, big wind turbine farms. Have you ever thought about? what happens when when each of those turbines comes to the end of its useful life no i've never thought about it either um so a wind turbine has a has a sort of functioning life of about 20 to 25 years and then it gets decommissioned what earth happens to those massive big structures afterwards never thought about it but i did hear an environmentalist say that they weren't necessarily made out of recyclable materials Oh, really? Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, interestingly, the story I came across was around repurposing the uh, wind turbines. So the, the, the initial story I came across before I looked into it in more detail was using the blades of the wind turbines as uh, a, a, to, to construct bridges. So mm. the, the story I looked at was in County Cork in Ireland, where an old railway bridge was replaced by a pedestrian one um, to create a new pedestrian greenway. And it was made up of recycled tur- oh, cool. wind turbine blades. Now, it's not the first one. The first one was actually in Western Poland last year, but it's still a relatively new um, sort of venture. I'm going to post a picture on our Facebook page because it's really cool looking, actually. Mm. And... Um, and, and, you know, the materials, uh, interesting that you're saying that about them not necessarily being recyclable, but the the, the actual structures, 
you know, have so much more life than just the commissioned use of as a wind turbine. So there's a lot of projects looking at things like building, creating climbing walls, skate parks, electricity pylons, playgrounds, um, and GE, um, uh, General Electric, are looking at turning it into cement. I couldn't quite get my head around that one, so I, I didn't look into that story much further. But the point really being um, that these structures can be used for um, for things beyond their initial use. I think I think that's important. You know, what I heard was a criticism that they, they weren't made out of probably what we think of as traditional recyclable materials. Yeah. However, that doesn't mean the thing itself. I mean, you've seen, you saw that massive blade at mm. Whiteley's um, wind wind farm in, in Scotland. They've got the blade lying on the ground, haven't they? It's huge. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't mean you can't incorporate it into a structure at its core. So it's yeah. a different type of reuse. Uh -huh. so when people criticise it, they're probably talking about can they melt it down yeah. and use it to make plastic bottles or something. I don't know. Uh -huh. But actually, you can use it for other yeah. Purpose, which is yeah. a form of Re yeah, repur repurposing it, absolutely. But the other thing that I found interesting the more I looked into this was that there's actually a big second-hand market for wind turbines in their yeah. entirety. So they can they can actually be refurbished and 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 sold on and 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 reused as wind turbines. Well, that's recycling. Yeah, yeah. Re repurposing, so, reuse. Yeah. So the, the biggest market is in Eastern Europe, Latin America, and Asia. Um, and obviously these sort of secondhand wind turbines, they're about 50% cheaper than, than the original ones. So for developing countries, they're, they're a great option. But then, but then you have to ask the question, why are they willing to use them, but we're not? Well, it's to do with that that commissioning. One one element of one of the stories I read was is not just to do with the wind turbines, but it's the land that they're on is, uh, okay. is for a certain period of time. So that's probably oh, a factor. Uh, yeah, so so the twenty-five. Yeah, yeah, land leasing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but okay. um, but yeah, it, it really interesting. So you know, that's one of the great things about looking into these stories is a question you've never asked yourself, you find an answer to, and go, wow, look, that's what's going on around the world. So, yeah. yeah, look out for your, you know, for the next, uh, yeah, creation in, in your part of the world is made from a wind turbine blade. Brilliant. Good stuff. Mm. So, yeah, I've got a corporate good news story. Now, I don't quite often do these, but this is a really charming, in my view, charming story. So that uh, wonderful Danish toy company, they're all aware of, no matter how old you are, which is Lego, um, are donating models of MRI scanners to hospitals to help children understand what they're going to experience. Mm, yeah. So Lego, the scourge of parents everywhere. If you ever trodden on a piece of Lego with bare feet, you know, there's hundreds of memes on Facebook about the yeah. pain that, that induces and things like that. Um, but basically... Fraser Lovett of Lego took to Twitter to show he was building one of these models of an MRI scanner to send to a hospital. Mm. And you go, what's this about? It's a toy, but these models are so detailed. You can open it up and show the internal machinery to a child who's about to go to go through an MRI scan and to show them how it works and, and what, what they're going to experience. So the model uses white, gray and blue bricks to mirror a hospital setting. 
and helps familiarise younger patients with the process ahead of them. Now, I've been in one of these things twice now. And quite frankly, I found it unnerving as well. You know, when I hurt my, slipped a disc in my neck, probably from rugby or whatever. Uh, You know, I'm a relatively large mammal and I had to lie in this thing and it was very claustrophobic and it makes a lot of strange noises, like a Mm. thumping noise. Mm. Your head's very close to the, basically lying in a tube. Yeah. Now, I found it unnerving, so I reckon kids must actually find it quite scary, I would have thought. And actually, I wouldn't quite like someone to have sat down with me and showed me this Lego model of an MRI scanner and showed me how it worked. Um, So... Eric Ululun Steyer, who I'm going to call an engineering boffin, because I reckon to work at Lego, you must be some kind of engineering boffin, came up with the idea, and they're asking their employees worldwide to build these things and then send them to hospitals. So there's no charge. It's just um, kind of a corporate social responsibility. It's a fantastic story from a a company uh, that we all know of and we all associate with children's toys and actually using what they normally do to help kids through a difficult time. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant, isn't Fantastic. it? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's great to do. I really like that. Yeah. Because, again, you know, just thinking about with the environmental hat on, plastic toys, plastic bricks, you know, all, all yeah. you could go down that route. But, but what we are here to do is to shine a light on the good stuff. So yeah. whatever you think of Lego, that's, yeah, that's going to make life easier for so many kids that are, you know, having to experience yeah. that. But think about Lego. I mean, Lego is the same when I was a child as it is now. Mm. So the blocks are the same size and different colours. And I'm sure they've developed other oh, yeah. Have you seen the some found- of the creations now? <laughs> yeah. But the foundation blocks are still, are still yeah. the same. So they're using the same. So you can hand it down from generation yeah. to generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. But uh, no, great story. Great story. Well, I'm going to stick with the medical theme. Um, so I came across the story and, and at first I, it it seemed like, in fact, I did just kind of gloss over it. And then I came back to it because it kind of got me thinking. So at the start of this year um, in France, um, birth control uh, was made free for all women under 25, basically between 18 and 25, because it was free for, for, for under 18s. Um, but and, and as I say, I kind of first glossed over that, maybe because we're so used to in the UK, um contraception is free and i thought well what's the really big deal is it or is it free in scotland because you get free prescriptions in scotland is it free down south in england Uh, i i thought it was i'm not sure if it is maybe it's not yeah no i think it is because you don't get it on prescription Ah, oh, well, you get birth control pills and prescription. Okay, note note uh, taken by Susan there. I'll I'll check on that. Yeah. But you you can see I kind of glossed over this because I thought, well, yeah. it's not really something. Is this big yeah. news? Yeah. But when I read more into it, the reason um, that this has happened is because um, because after the age of eighteen. Um, most, um, a lot of women, I can't remember the percentage now, um, stopped using contraception. A lot of the a lot of the reason was because of the financial um, uh, situation, uh, for financial reasons. And um, when I kind of looked into it, the World Health Health Organization um, says that 270 million women of reproductive age have unmet contraception needs around the world for various reasons. But wow. that is a lot of a lot of women. Yeah. And 
you know, this isn't for me when I really thought about this. This isn't just about contraception and and you know not having an unplanned pregnancy. Um, it was bigger than that. It it was like what it what is the, the implication for young women who um, you know for whatever reason don't have access to or don't feel that they they have access to um, or, or can take advantage of contraception and. So, you know, across the world, there are such varying um, degrees of whether it's free, whether it's subsidised, whether it's, you know, how you can get, get hold of contraception. Um, but wrapped into the UN Sustainability Development Goals, I don't know if you've heard of them, but the UN Sustainability Development Goals, um, one of those is around um, good health and well-being. And so this move in France and along with other countries like Ghana, for example, are now starting to really look at this situation of um, enabling more women, these 270 million women, um, to get access to cont contraception in a way that is not um, prohibitive, whether it's for financial reasons or, or whatever else. Um, so, yeah, I just thought there's there's a real sense of, you know, equality and freedom and, um, you know, sort of, I guess, um, safety and, and education. There's so many elements to this, I think, for women um, who um, perhaps at the moment don't have it. So, yeah, that, that was a, a story that I kind of glossed over, but then thought, no, actually, there's a bigger a bigger picture to this here. It's like fair and equal access, isn't it? So it's the same, it's the same with period-related products as well, you know, mm. enabling access for, for everyone so that money doesn't become the barrier. Exactly. It shouldn't be. There's plenty of money in the world to provide these things for people that can't afford them. Yeah. And it might have a negative impact on their life and others just because they can't afford something that's pretty essential for a human acts or human you know, function, however you want to describe it. Yeah. Um, so I think it kind of sits, for me, it sits in the, the same realm of importance as you know, accessible period products, things like that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, back to you. Okay. Right, so, interestingly, this is an Italian story from the great country of Italy. So, Milan is to create 750 kilometres of cycle paths by 2035. So 700, 750 kilometres. Okay. Wow. Uh, part of a plan to cut pollution. So, the Cambio plan adopted in November last year by the Italian city's Metropolitan Council, is set to launch in the summer with a budget of 250 million euros. Hmm? Now, that's a commitment to, to mm -hmm. cycling, in, isn't it? Now, I associate our trips to Italy, I associate with scooters. Yes, yeah. Noisy, you know, producing... Polluting, yeah. <laughs> polluting, although scooters are better than cars. Mm. They don't produce as much as cars do, obviously. Um, but this web of cycle paths consists of four ring roads, four greenways and 16 radiating lines will connect the city core, its suburbs and the different municipalities. And if you look at this planned map, it's incredible. It's almost like looking at the London tube map of the level mm. of connectivity. When it's finished, the network will exceed the 680 kilometres of cycle pass that Paris currently has planned. So I think maybe a little bit of yeah. European city competition <laughs> going on. Now, I don't know what London's cycle paths are. I'm interested to find out mm. uh, and see what the plans are for new ones. So 
Councillor for Mobility, Beatrice Ugiacini, says it will create a capillary network of cyber paths that will integrate with other existing models, modes of travel. So Beatrice, I think, is probably a politician, therefore not a boffin. Um, but uh, she is the councillor for mobility. So as I mentioned, you know, we've talked about scooters and things, but I love Target. They've set themselves some really stretching targets, which I like about this. And they're human-based targets, not just about building kilometres of paths. So, so they want 20% of residents of Milan to be cycling by 2035. Yeah. And they want to ensure that 80% of homes are within one kilometre of a fully protected cycle route. So not a cycle route that uses roads where there are motorised vehicles. So sometimes we talk about targets and how many buildings are covered, but I actually like those because I think they actually mean something. Mm. Um, How you measure whether 20% of residents are going to be cycling, I don't know. But you can certainly measure the 80% of homes within one kilometre of a protected cycle route. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's quite a tangible target. I like that. Yeah. So during the lockdown, interestingly, Milan reallocated 35 kilometres of roads for cycle lanes and created new widened pavements. They designated streets as a priority for pedestrians and cyclists and imposed 30 kilometre speed limits on a lot of roads. Mm. So that's a good, it's a kind of pandemic good news story in that as well, is that they decided to do that mm-hmm. while the roads are quiet. Let's yeah. do some repurposing. You know. mm-hmm. So these paths will also have technology. So low impact motion center lighting. So if you're cycling at night, it mm-hmm. will light up as you, as, you, as you cycle down it. Digital displays with information on and a network of fiber, fiber optic cables. Now I just said that, I'm not sure what that's for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose if you're going to build that amount of cycle paths, you may as well get some fibre optic cabling underneath yeah. it while you're doing it and get, get Milan connected even more yeah. to the World Wide Web, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and it, it says also they're going to develop bike parking stations. Now, you probably expect that if you're going to build a huge cycle network. So as our listeners don't know, we're both uh, learning Italian. <laughs> so. Stupefacente Milano, which means amazing Milan, apparently. Very good. I'm impressed yeah. with your Italian. Did you like that? Yeah. I did like that. <laughs> You're way ahead in your Italian lessons than I am. <laughs> well, don't ask me any other words. Stupefacente just uh, was particularly fantastic. About oh, brilliant. Go. Great. And you know, it, it, I was reading another story about in Barcelona where they're building these what they call super blocks and they've gone kind of a step further where they're making these sort of pedestrianized zones but but you know there are blocks where people live you know blocks of, of accommodation houses and flats and things and then it's pedestrianized in there and so I guess there's just there's so much more happening around this isn't there there's a, a real realization that yeah. from an environmental point of view a health point of view and just the way people want to live as well and um, there's lots of kind of re replanning of of t- town and city centres which is great well i think that when you talk about the barcelona one it sounds to me like you, you know that we in in this country when in the 60s and 70s they built tower blocks yeah and they've now been discredited as kind of the death of community mm. so now and the death of community because they they were plonked with no services yeah flanked by roads so 
to get in and get out, you had to get in a car or a bus or something like that. So I think what you're talking with the super blocks is the connected, they're trying to build community. So yep. you don't need roads to connect with essential services or to move between to where other people live, you know, friends or family and things like that. Um, a lot of it's got to do with the development, uh, the, yeah. the refocus on community. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it has. So we'll maybe, maybe share more about that in a future episode. Mm. So the last story that I've got um, is, uh, you're going to like this one, Dan. Um, remember you've had this notion to write a, a, cook, a, a recipe book called um, Let, Let's Talk About Stocks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it's along food that waste, line. Food waste, yeah. Okay. Food waste. So did you know that about 10 million tonnes of mandarin peel get incinerated every year? 10 what? million. Why would I know that? Mandarin? Yeah. Okay. So, like, well, what you will know, because we compost, that putting citrus peel into your compost is not a great idea. The reason being it doesn't biodegrade very easily. It takes a long, long time because it's yeah. because of the, the chemical makeup yeah. of the peel, which protects yeah. the fruit, which is great, but it's it's not great for um, degrading. Nice. Smells nice, yeah. Yeah, it makes the compost smell nice. So 10 million tonnes get incinerated because it doesn't just biodegrade, um, you know, sort of uh, in, in a reasonable time. So this guy called Richard Blackburn, has set up a green beauty company called Dr. Craft. And so R Richard is a professor of sustainable materials at Leeds University in the UK. And he has launched a range of Mandarin um, products using this leftover peel. So, you know, something for you to think about. What can you do with broccoli stalks? I'm sure this guy could tell you. Um, so he imports dried Mandarin peel from China. Do you have, do you have an idea of what how much of the what percentage of the world's um, mandarins are grown in china 89% very close 90% right. so look at that yeah 90% of mandarins grown in china so he imports the dried peel and makes a liquid out of it to then put into his products um so and and then once because he's it, they've taken the liquid out um, they biodegrade much more quickly. So he's actually using the liquid to make his products, but also it's helping to, to you know, so, so the peel doesn't just sit in landfill for um, for years. So he's doing that with mandarins. Um, he's also found that dried blackcurrant skins used, that, that are used in Ribena can be repurposed or um, introduced to create purple hair toners and brightening serums. <laughs> Next time you have your carton of Ribena, think of that. Um, oh, it's a natural product, it's a natural product, isn't it, I suppose, for yeah. colouring your hair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Grapeseed oil is extracted from the skins of Pinot Noir grapes to make body care products. And this is probably not so unusual. Avocado stones made um, into exfoliators, which is maybe something people have heard of. Avocado stones? Stones, yeah. Ground down oh. to make into exfoliators. Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. Okay, so I thought that was a bit more, um, you know, sort of... I thought it was just like a rubbish gift in the middle of an avocado. <laughs> there you go, there you go. So, um, yeah, so Dr. Craft, we'll, we'll post the, the link in case anyone wants to look. The, the stuff looks really nice, I haven't tried it myself. Um, but we both use products from Upcircle and they use coffee grounds. Um, yes, to make yeah, yeah. products. So there's lots and lots of, um, this guy's not the only one, but... I particularly liked it because of that huge number of, of uh, uh, tons of mandarin um, peel that goes to waste. But yeah, good news story about using leftover um, leftover food. Cool. 
Sounds good. So there you go. Right, I think that's us for this yeah. episode. There's a nice variety and eclectic mix of good news stories, as always. And I managed to avoid fusion and beavers for once. Yeah. Not, not that people have been getting bored of those stories, but we like to just mix it up a bit. Um, so just before we go, um, what I would like to remind people is that we have a Facebook page, Susan and Dan's podcast, where you'll find links to um, a lot of our stories. But we've also got our website, www.timeforthegoodnews.co.uk, um, where you can get in contact with us to tell us any of your good news stories. Um, and you can download the latest episode. So I think that's all from us. Anything else from you, Dan? That's it. Bye from me. Thanks very much for listening. Okay, thank you. Bye.